than what they should have received. So when we have a fault overpayment, they typically disqualify someone with wage reporting for the entire uh, the entire week, right? So if you didn't report, uh, you know, the $200 worth of income you had, um, and so therefore you received $500 worth of benefits, um, then and if and if you they found it's a fault, then you owe them the $500 back. But if it's a non-fault. Um, and you still would have received most of that $500 because of partial benefit credit um, in that week, then you only owe the amount that you shouldn't have received based on the income you didn't report. So it should be a much smaller overpayment in terms of the total amount of money. Um, and the service center doesn't always get this right. So it's really important to look closely on these wage reporting cases to make sure that the math is actually done correctly um, and to make sure that the referees are doing the math correctly uh, after a hearing. Fault overpayments are of course the ones that we are terrified of. Uh, these occur um, and are, are issued under section 804A. The language is just any person who by reason of his or her or we'll say their fault um, has received compensation they weren't eligible to, eligible for. Um, Fault overpayments, unlike non-fault overpayments, accrue interest at a rate determined by the Department of Treasury. For the longest time, that was 9%. I believe it's lower now. Um, but they can also fully recoup fault overpayments by deducting 100% of future benefits um, for a 10-year period. Um, that's the current statute of limitations, the statute of collections on recoupment for fault overpayments. Although if you're talking about an old overpayment, that was before uh, you know, June 2012, it was a six year statute of collections. Uh, so they can take, like I said, the entirety of your overpayment amount, um, but uh, they can't take any sort of interest or penalties assessed against you without permission from uh, the claimant. Uh, so they have to otherwise stop recouping once they get the principal. Uh, they can also, intercept people's uh, tax returns to the Treasury Offset Program, um, file liens and judgments against them in the Court of Common Pleas um, based on unpaid, um, unpaid principal and interest. Uh, and sometimes they do uh, send these cases uh, when, it's, when it's fraud, when it has additional penalties uh, to the local district attorney for prosecution. Um, they are um, misdemeanor cases. For the liens, it's just important to make sure people know um, they do not show up on your credit report. Um, but if somebody's trying to get a mortgage uh, or a loan and somebody does a search for judgments, they will show up. Um, those liens stay for perpetuity. Um, they, they don't go away. Um, and so the only way to get rid of them is to satisfy it by paying it back. Uh, however, it doesn't really affect most of our clients um, because generally it, it attaches to property issues. And so maybe if they own real property and they're selling it, um, it could you know, be used to, um, to lower the amount they receive from any sort of sale. Uh, but sometimes it doesn't actually attach to the property. They're just not set up very well. So um, you know, we encourage people to pay these back uh, because of the various consequences. But uh, if somebody can't, then then you know, there's very little that it will uh, do to impact um, a, a vast majority of our clients. They cannot do, there's no wage garnishment in Pennsylvania. Um, they cannot garnish or intercept any other sort of federal benefits like social security benefits, um, just what you see up here on the screen. Now, fault overpayments are not defined in the statute. There is no definition of fault. 
um, but it has been made very clear uh, that fault has you have in order to establish fault, the department has to find, uh, in essence, uh, a culpable act, right? That they actually did something um, to which blame, censure, and propriety um, attaches, right? So we're talking about a blameworthy act, uh, and it really has to do with showing the claimant state of mind. So there has to be a finding on state of mind. Generally speaking, uh, the board has been applying the, the same kind of standard for fault and fraud penalties, um, which is if they haven't, you know, intentionally misled the department um, or, um, you know, intentionally well withheld and knowingly withheld information, um, then it will be a non-fault overpayment. Every once in a while, we see them find a fault overpayment, but no fraud penalties because they didn't intentionally withhold information. Um, from the referee, and we'll often appeal those to the board, and they'll usually agree that that shouldn't be a fault overpayment either, which means there's really not a lot of light between fault and penalty uh, fraud provisions in our law, which we're okay with um, at the moment because we, we don't want the standard for fault to be lowered at all. Um, and so uh, that's generally what the argument is going to be in a lot of these cases, um, especially with wage reporting cases going forward. I think, like I said, we're going to see a lot of those. Um, if it's a complicated question of what the wages are, if you know, maybe the wages were wrongly reported by the employer, um, it's very helpful to have someone represent that claimant in a hearing. But if the claimant just didn't report because they didn't realize they had to report, those clients are sometimes better off going on their own to the hearing because they are more sympathetic and better kind of showing their confusion about the system. Um, then uh, when they're represented and we're asking, well, did you intentionally withhold information from unemployment? And then the referees just think that like we prep them to give them all those answers um, and are less likely to find them credible. Um, so seriously consider as you're talking about priorities over the next few years, that in some of these wage reporting cases where people just didn't understand or didn't know, um, you know, prepping them to go on the, to the hearing on their own um, might actually be a more effective type of advocacy for them. And, and again, Mere mistake, confusion should not cause um, a fault overpayment. Uh, that's the big thing we're gonna be arguing for the next several years in all of these overpayment cases, especially in PUA, right? Like a lot of people just didn't understand um, what the eligibility requirements were. Um, and if they answered everything truthfully on the application and they were paid um, in PUA and then later found ineligible, they should not have a fraud overpayment. They should have a non-fraud overpayment. I'm throwing those, oh, and then I'll, and of course, you know, penalty weeks are, are still around. Um, this has been really harmful to claimants during the pandemic. Penalty weeks are in essence dead weeks that people have to file where they don't get paid. Um, we have, um, you know, issued a demand letter to the Department of Labor and Industry about the fact that they have not let people on penalty weeks file in PUA. Um, which we believe they should be eligible for PUA, given that they are ineligible for regular UC. Um, they also didn't receive the extra $600 or $300 for this week. Um, we are right now hoping and waiting that the uh, Federal Department of Labor um, may adjust previous guidance on this to make it clear that these workers are eligible for PUA during these weeks. Um, and so we are waiting to see how that shakes out before pursuing the litigation further. Um, we've been tracking our clients who have lost thousands of dollars due to the penalty week issue um, so that if there is a change, we can immediately notify people um, of that uh, to try to get them access to benefits. 
So I've been throwing around a lot of terms, just to be clear, for the federal programs, right? We're talking PUC, PEUC, PUA, they use non-fraud, right? Non-fraud equals non-fault, and they use fraud. Fraud equals fault for purposes of Pennsylvania law. And that's because the federal program overpayments are still governed by state law, right? So they can only be collected consistent with the recruitment provisions of our state law. Now, there have been several different issues with overpayments in the UC system. Um, first, you know, we've had a lot of people who have overpayments that are outside the statute of co collections, um, so they can't recoup them. But in our old mainframe system, there's still a hold on those benefits um, because of the old overpayment. And so claims must be manually released, uh, which is really annoying and has held up benefits for folks a lot of the time. Um, they often do go in and manually release, but it, it can be like a week, two week, three week delay for a lot of people. Um, if this is happening continuously with someone or it's been quite some time, we recommend reaching out to the department about that. If you're trying to figure out how old someone's overpayment is, um, one method to do that is to search Court of Common Pleas dockets uh, for liens or judgments against your client. It'll be Commonwealth of PA versus um, your client's name. One piece of information that has been incorrectly given out by the department, uh, often by reps on the phone, is that if you make a voluntary contribution to your overpayment that is outside the statute of collections, uh, then your overpayments will just be released timely every week. That is not true. The uh, head of benefit payment control has confirmed for us that voluntary contributions have no such effect. Uh, there is still uh, a hold on people's benefits. And in essence, this just feels like coercion to try to get people to pay money uh, on overpayments that the government uh, can't come after them for. Uh, one thing to note is that overpayments, and I, we emailed about this recently on the plan listserv. Um, so the extra 600, extra $300, overpayments do apply to that. So a non-fault overpayment should result in a, a, a one-third offset from the PUC um, and if it's a fault overpayment, they can't take the full thing, but they can take 50% of it per federal law. That's how it's supposed to work. How it's been working in Pennsylvania, and we don't see it changing uh, anytime soon, is that our old unemployment compensation mainframe system can't figure out how to pay people different amounts of supplement. Um, therefore, everyone, regardless of having an overpayment or not, is just receiving the full PUC. Um, so they've been receiving the full PUC since the summer, they're receiving it now. Um, it's unclear to us if that's going to change, if at some point they might issue overpayments for that. Um, very unclear, but in the meantime, it's working out well for our clients that they're getting the full amount of the supplement. So we are also starting to see, as we talked about a lot of determinations in the PUA system, and so of course, those are leading to overpayments. Um, overpayment determinations will show up in a claimant's message center. Um, it should be there as, in essence, like an email message with the overpayment notice attached. You can also find them by going to the unemployment services uh, section in the menu and then the appeals tab, uh, sorry, the appeals section. And once you're in that, there's a, a tab at the top that says determinations. Also, just note, we keep talking about um, going into people's portals. I know that this is not anyone's preference. We don't love collecting information for our clients. Um, if you don't feel comfortable navigating your client's portal 
without them and you know, collecting their login information, which of course we only keep in our secure client management system. You could try to Zoom with the client or do some sort of screen share where they're on their portal and able to show you what's going on. The vast majority of PUA overpayments so far have been non-fraud, which we are glad to see. We were really worried about that at first. Um, the vast majority are due to disqualifications uh, on eligibility. In essence, they're just looking over claims and deciding that people weren't eligible for the benefits they were paid for. Um, and so they're issuing non-fraud overpayments. We are starting to see some fraud overpayments. Every once in a while, we've seen one where they are claiming somebody lied on their initial application, but they don't provide any more information than that. So we have no idea what they're claiming the lie was. Um, and then we are seeing fraud overpayments in those cases where somebody received both PUA and UC at the same time. In essence, they were filing in both systems and getting paid out of both systems at the same time. Not like they accidentally filed in one and it paid them for all the same weeks they had gotten UC and things like that, but they were actively filing in both and receiving both at the same time. Um, it's going to be really important to appeal those fraud overpayments um, and help your client understand how to explain what their confusion was, why they did that. Um, again, um, it's an interesting question about whether it makes sense for us to be at those hearings or whether they're going to be more sympathetic without us. Um, but I'm also looking into you know, what sort of resource could we give advocates or claimants to point to that set that shows like this is a widespread problem, right? It's not just this person who did it. Lots of people made this mistake. And also the system should have caught it from the get-go. Um, and so they never should have gotten paid. Um, so I, I'm, we're trying to think about what we might be able to get out there publicly that people could point to um, to help with that. So one thing I wanted to alert everyone to is that there has been a significant overpayment issue in PUA with how offsets are happening. Um, so the PUA system has been incorrectly applying these offsets we've talked about. Um, this all started back last summer in July with what we call the GSI double pay issue. This is when Geographic Solutions Incorporated, the vendor for the PUA system, accidentally somehow double paid 35,000 uh, claimants uh, for um, for one week of payment, meaning that that uh, those claimants, if they had received multiple weeks of payment in that one week, that those multiple weeks all got reissued again. So this led to some significant overpayments for folks because it also caused them to get the extra $600 again. Um, these are non-fraud overpayments, but then the system began offsetting 50% instead of 33%. Um, and then at some point cut claimants off completely from benefits in the fall, so they did not get their full 39 weeks. Um, we've been raising this issue consistently with the department, um, and the issue is now even more widespread. Uh, claimants are receiving notice or seeing on their portal that they have exhausted their benefits, even though they haven't received their full 39 weeks in 2020 or a total of 50 weeks now. Um, and that's because the system is saying that they previously received more money than they were eligible for. So like those GSI double pay clients, because they received a double pay of their PUA benefits, they're counting that against their benefit allowance and saying, oops, sorry, you early exhausted your benefits. Um, or for instance, claimants who had a downward adjustment in their weekly benefit amount. So they were originally getting $400, but they didn't have the documentation to back it up. So it got downgraded 
to 195. Um, the system saying, well, we paid you all that money earlier, so you early exhausted your benefits. Let's be very, very clear. There is no such thing as early exhaustion of benefits. Um, the way that this should work, and the only way it can work legally, um, is that when that happens, if somebody receives benefits they were not eligible for, they should be issued a non-fraud overpayment and then have a one-third offset. In essence, what they're doing is trying to squeeze claimants at both ends, especially if they do have an overpayment determination and we're taking a third and then doing this early exhaustion bit. Some of these claimants, especially the ones who had the downward adjustment, like don't even have an overpayment determination. They're just getting a message that says exhaustion. Um, and this is a real problem, not only because people didn't receive all their weeks in 2020, but it's prevented a lot of claimants from getting any payments in 2021 and getting access to the extra 11 weeks or it's cutting them off early for the extra 11 weeks. Um, again, we have been on DLI about this change for months um, and the problem, I will say that this week we got indication that progress is being made, that they do seem to realize this is a programming error in GSI, all of these aspects, um, and I believe are working to fix it. So as soon as we have an update for folks, we'll let you know. In essence, this is a system problem. So if you have a single client experiencing this, there's really nothing we can do to change it with the department. They have to fix it on a system-wide basis. Um, and so it'll get fixed for everyone, not just our clients or people that we've made them aware of. So one of the things I wanted to quickly go over because there's been some talk about it as well, are what the department often refers to as internal overpayments or cross-program overpayments. Um, so that happens when DLI, <coughs> DLI um, moves people who are in the wrong program. So they see that somebody is in PUA, but they see they should have been eligible for a UC claim for that period. Um, or we have a lot of people who filed for PUA because it was available before PEUC availability was announced. And so they were collecting PUA when really because of an older unemployment claim, they could have gotten PUC and EB. And so what the department is doing is they're moving things over, they're building the UC claim. And then for the weeks that somebody had received PUA, they're in essence doing a total offset um, for those weeks in the UC system, which they're calling an internal overpayment. They're in essence just moving the money between um, PUA and UC uh, to in essence prevent there from being any sort of real overpayment there. And for some clients, it's actually an underpayment because they might've had a higher benefit rate on UC than they had for PUA. But it often looks funny in the system because if you log in and look in, at the benefit payment history in UC, you'll just see like overpayment offset and it's 100% offset, which looks odd because it's a non-fault overpayment. But they're just moving money around in the background um, and that prevents our clients from having uh, much of an overpayment. The thing that's confusing about that is that it doesn't change the number, um, like the, um, the amount of their overpayment listed on the PUA portal because the systems don't talk to each other. So people are seeing that they have an overpayment of like $14,000 in their PUA portal, when in actuality, it could be like $700, right? Because of how the internal offsets end up working. And generally they don't have what's called PUC, the, the PUC overpayments because they were eligible for PUC on the UC claim. Um, so it's really difficult for people to figure out. Um, we've reached out to the department and their federal programs team to figure out how they can make this reflect more accurately um, for folks. And also like 
we don't want those overpayments to sit in PUA at the total amount and not change in that system in case that causes other problems. Um, but again, everything is, is just a little bit of a mess um, right now, but we do think that they are often handling these internal transfers and overpayments correctly. Um, I've seen a lot of cases where they've done this accurately. Um, and so that is generally a good thing. If there are any weeks that somebody filed on um, in, in, let's say, let's say for any weeks not filed, I meant not filed on UC, sorry. Um, so if somebody had filed for weeks in PUA, but they weren't eligible for those weeks in UC, um, then they can offset, again, one third of that week when they pay it out um, in the other program. So the internal offsets only apply to weeks that were filed in both systems for the same week. It's not happening in the opposite direction. We have not really seen UC overpayments being offset against new PUA payments if they move programs. They just continue to have kind of the non-fault overpayment in UC. So it only seems to be going one way right now, unclear um, if that's gonna change or if that might just be because of limitations with the PUA system. Um, before I get to waivers, one other um, note on this, um, as I said, in the UC system, um, the PUC payments are not being offset, but they are being offset in the PUA system. So people who do have these non-fraud overpayments are getting a third of the $300 currently offset. Um, so that is correct for everyone. They're, they're correctly able to do that at a third. Don't know why they can't correctly do the regular PUA benefits at a third, um, but that's so, but, but that is actually happening in terms of an offset in PUA. So finally, it's been made clear to us by the department, even after months of us asking them about this, um, that they are re-upping a program they were able to use during um, the recession to, to have waivers for the federal programs, even though we don't have a waiver provision in our state law. So waiver is available for non-fraud overpayments for the federal program. So that's PEUC, PUC, and now PUA. PUA was not previously waive, uh, um, applicable for waiver, but that changed in uh, the December extension. And so PUA can now be waived. Under federal law, waiver should be granted if the repayment would be contrary to equity and good conscience. Um, not further defined really, it's been further defined by other states. And I, I actually do think I'm going to have to look it up because it's been a long time. I do think that we have some case law in Pennsylvania about this from the recession. Um, the department is not advertising waivers. They're not doing anything to make this well known. I think because their opinion is, well, you know, a lot of people are going to apply for waivers then who are not eligible and it's just more work for us, uh, which is really awful because these waivers can be really vital to people. Um, the waivers are coming in the mail often along with notices of determination of overpayments for PUC or PEUC on the UC side, but some people are not getting the waivers in the mail, so it doesn't seem to be consistent. Um, on the PUA side, PUC waivers were issued at some points in the PUA portal for some overpayments like the GSI double pay, although back last summer we were telling people ignore that. PA doesn't have a waiver and the department was agreeing with us. Um, so, you know, this is again, a shift in, um, in, in kind of policy for the department now um, in allowing these waivers. We have not seen a PUA waiver form yet. Uh, I have been asking the department about where that is and how people would find it. 
Um, the form itself just asks people questions about why they mistakenly or incorrectly received unemployment, right? That's the kind of like equity um, argument. Um, and then they ask for a lot of information about income and expenses. They really want people to show like they really can't afford um, to pay this money back. Um, and they ask for documentation to go along with it. The way a waiver process works is the waiver is submitted back to the service center and then the service center is supposed to issue a determination on the waiver. Um, and if somebody disagrees, they have a right of appeal to a referee on the waiver. Um, but because this is all happening kind of so suddenly and everything is already so backlogged, the referees have agreed to hear the waivers um, directly, even without a decision by the service center, if the waiver documentation is sent in along with the appeal. So if they file the appeal and attach the waiver documentation, then the referee will actually make the first decision on waiver, which again, if denied, would be appealable to the, um, uh, the board of review. One thing is that these waivers, uh, like they're not, they don't have an online version somewhere. They don't have a, anything that people can download for this. It's just whether they've received it in the mail. And if they haven't, they're supposed to ask the service center to send them, which is all crazy um, and inefficient and never going to work with the mail and what's happening with the service centers. We're working to try to create an online form that people can use um, to submit the waiver information. And um, we're also gonna be speaking with the department about ways to make this more accessible. Um, but for now, know that some of your clients have this. You might see it on hearing notices. Um, and if people ask you about waiver, should um, push them to apply for it for non-fraud overpayments. Uh, one thing we're unclear about is whether they're going to apply the waivers retroactively. Um, I've asked uh, the Federal Department of Labor for clarification on whether waiver should be retroactive. Um, because I'm a little bit worried the state's going to be like, well, when we collected it, there wasn't a waiver in place, so we don't have to give it back. Kind of like how they talk about when they collect fault over payments and then it switched to non-fault and they say, we don't have to pay that extra, you know, 67% back because we collected it while it was a fault over payment. Um, so our reading of the law is that it is retroactive um, and we're hoping that DOL will issue some clarifications on that because otherwise people are really getting harmed by the fact that the department has dragged their feet um, on the waiver issue. Um, and with that, um, that is it on overpayments. Um, let me see, I think we have, yeah. If I could just interrupt here, I need to launch the um, poll for this training hour. Attorneys on the session, if you could please respond. I'll leave it up for two minutes. And Julia, please feel free to continue. Thanks. Yeah, so um, Deborah, I see that you asked about, can you request her payment be refunded? Um, the response that they have always given us is if it was collected while it was a fault overpayment because they take the position that the overpayment is collectible as soon as the 15 days pass, even if it's under appeal, um, which is still something I think we wanna figure out a way to address on a more systemic level. Um, they say it was collected under good law. It was a fault overpayment, so we don't have to give it back. Um, I always think it's helpful to ask because I like to have them put that in writing as much as possible in case we do want to do something about it, um, but that's often um, how they've handled it for at least the last six years. Um, okay, is it best to appeal first on a non-fraud than potentially seek? So um, the first, with overpayments, the first goal 
is always to reverse the eligibility, right? The goal is to have them found eligible so that there is no overpayment, right? The second goal is um, to make sure it is non-fault or non-fraud instead of fault or fraud, right? So these are the kind of the, the levels of arguments you want to be making and focused on in the hearings. And then of course, if it is a non-fraud or non-fault overpayment, you should ask for the waiver. Um, and have the client submit the waiver. But you should always uh, try to go after the eligibility issue first and foremost. Any other questions about that? We'll continue to provide updates as we have them on, on the waiver issues. And we also, this is kind of the wild, wild west um, of <laughs> UC determination uh, and referee decisions on waiver. We don't really know what they're gonna be using to um, evaluate this, kind of what their standards are, um, similar to the PUA system, like we just, this is all new, it's new to them as well. Um, so, you know, this is really great opportunity for those of you on the plan listserv to share experiences um, of what has happened in these hearings, what sort of questions have been asked and that sort of thing. Um, fault overpayments can be discharged in bankruptcy. Um, that is the thing. Now, often, we don't, I mean, we will refer people to uh, the consumer bankruptcy um, project in, um, in Philadelphia um, to have their kind of entire debt structure looked at to see if bankruptcy makes sense in general. Um, very rare have we found that it makes sense for someone to go through bankruptcy just for unemployment debt, but it is dischargeable. Okay, so the last 10 minutes, I wanna spend um, talking a little bit about benefit modernization. So what is benefit modernization? Um, as I keep talking about, our unemployment uh, compensation system here in Pennsylvania uh, is operated by a mainframe legacy system. That means it is a whole bunch of really huge computers in the basement in Harrisburg, kind of like old NASA computers. And that's what holds all of our data and runs all of the programming for the state. It's run on a language that uh, is almost non-operable these days. People don't know how to change it, how to make program updates. Um, so it's been really difficult for them to make changes quickly during um, this pandemic uh, to the UC side. Uh, and so back in 2017, the state contracted with a vendor uh, to update its system, to move it off of the mainframe, to make it more accessible. Um, I've been serving on an advisory committee uh, where I was appointed by the legislature to oversee this project for the last three years. It was originally supposed to uh, be implemented in October of 2020, but we pushed for that to be delayed um, because we were very concerned about the implementation of a brand new system in the midst of this pandemic um, and the benefit um, lapses or errors it could cause when it goes live because deploying new technology always comes with problems. It's never a clean um, or perfect process. So it got delayed, um, but it does look like it will probably end up happening sometime in the late spring, early summer of this year. Um, so we will be providing constant updates about that, but you kind of already know what it looks like because our new modernized system um, is being created by Geographic Solutions Incorporated, the vendor for the PUA system. So what you've seen in the PUA system in terms of navigation, in terms of what information is available to claimants, um, that is, that's what you see 
claimants will have access to at some point. Um, they will actually, it's actually much cleaner and better um, in the UC system because they've made lots of modifications to it over the last three years. Uh, and so there are lots of good things about modernization in terms of a lot of these issues people have with like manual holds and getting cut off um, incorrectly from benefits like that should all, uh, it, you know, when there's not a determination and things like that, that should all go away um, in the new system. However, um, I am very concerned and continue to raise my concerns about them going live with the system during the pandemic when we have a million people filing claims. Uh, there are going to be some questions about how login works, how people set up their logins, if they have a Keystone ID, um, which we're worried is going to confuse people. And we are just very worried that, that there are going to be problems in the rollout, um, especially because we don't have a lot of faith in Geographic Solutions Incorporated since they've done such a poor job in the PUA system and have been so slow um, to fix problems. So I have been very clear um, about my feelings with this with the department. Um, I'm starting to be more clear um, in media when asked about it. Um, so, you know, we're waiting to see kind of what it, they're aware of these, some of these concerns, and we're waiting to see what they might do to address that before they go live with the project. Um, but like I said, there is no date currently set for when they're going to go live with the project. Um, I will keep you guys updated when we have updates. And as soon as we know anything, um, the department will um, be uh, doing a lot of external communication about this uh, when it comes to it, and we will too. Um, one thing that is really frustrating about this is that we are going to be put in the same position that we are with PUA and that we do not have our own access to the PUA, to the UC portal. Um, we would have to log in as our clients with their username and password, which I have pointed out is horrible. We don't want to be doing that. They need to give us a point of access, especially because third-party administrators, like the employer representatives, they have a point of access. Um, but of course, these systems that they're just kind of these pre-made systems that states are buying for these modernization projects never think, oh, workers might have advocates too. So they're not built with an access point for us. Um, we've raised this several times. Um, we've raised this to the legislature. Um, there are some thoughts about workarounds that we're waiting to hear from the department. And they have said that post go live, it'll be a priority for them to get us a separate um, access point. But it is a, a, it is a, a real frustration um, for us that even though our clients may have access to a lot more good information after modernization, we don't necessarily have a good way to see that without doing what we're doing now in the PUA system and logging in as our clients, which we don't like doing. That's not what we, nobody wants to be doing that um, because it, 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 it raises all sorts of issues. Um, so uh, that's kind of where we are on benefit modernization. Like I said, as soon as there's information or updates, um, we will um, get back to you. We'll be sharing a lot of information. Um, there are some guides already up on the unemployment website um, about the modernized system and how to use it. You'll note that the guides have a lot of explanation that go along with each question, which tells you that they made the questions too difficult to understand on their own. Um, unfortunately, we were not able to get them to make much in terms of language changes to the UC. Uh, application, which is crazy because as I think you all know personally now, no one understands half the questions on the UC application. Um, and so um, that has just been um, really frustrating uh, and something we've kind of also pushed with the legislature um, moving forward with the department. 
Um, and so, like I said, I'll be back with updates um, on that as things change. Um, I see somebody asked, are waiver forms available anywhere if they have not been mailed out? I don't think so. There is not like a, just a blank waiver form anywhere on the website. We have asked them for that. Um, that what they've said is you have to contact the service center for them to mail you one. How someone is supposed to do that is beyond me. So we, we're taking significant issue with how this is being approached um, and are working to try to get them to make this more accessible because um, it really just feels like they're hiding the ball with people, which is really harmful to lots of clients, especially for PUC, because the PUC overpayments are, are where the real money is coming into play um, because an extra $600 a week that you're considered overpaid for adds up very quickly. Um, so any questions on all of that? Um, I know that I am currently standing between you and a lunch break, so it's possible that we don't, <laughs> um, but this is your time. Um, so Kevin, the problem with um, the appliance blank waiver form is that, like it has their name on it um, and it has a specific service center, which is why we're trying to make an online version. Um, but the, but you can't, but like, if you want to just try to like white out or redact the name and have someone enter in their own name. I mean, like I say, we should be as scrappy as possible. So if there's ways uh, that people can do that, if they have access to it, um, be scrappy, try to get these waiver forms in any way you can, because it's going to help our clients. Um, but um, they do have people's name and address and everything on them when they're mailed out. Yeah, so that's, um, Eileen, that's what we're doing. We're trying to create, uh, Eileen asked, can somebody create a template? So that's what we're doing. We're trying to create, in essence, an a fillable online form that will um, kind of spit out a waiver um, for folks. Um, so I don't know who asked about the claimant advocate resource account. Um, that resource account is for legal aid in the state. So if you are at a legal aid organization um, in the plan network, um, you should speak with one of your coworkers to get access to that email address. Um, if you're not um, with legal aid in the state, then uh, you need, if you need to contact the department about a client's claim or they need to contact the department, they need to go through their um, state rep or state senator to try to get that access point. Um, but talk to your colleagues um, to see if you're um, at an organization that has access to that information. Okay, um, and with that, we'll go ahead and break for lunch. 